father's lightsaber. What? Lightsabers, precious? What's Lightsaber's Precious? Lord of the Rings and Star Wars Encyclopodcast, where we waste time on fictional wikis. I'm Ryan. And I'm Joanna. Guess what, Ryan? What's that? There's going to be a movie about J.R.R. Tolkien coming out in theaters on May. They I already, mean, in May. They already made like six of those. They're called Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. No. Trilogies. No, Ryan. About the guy himself. Really? Okay. Like a biopic. Like, about him going to World War One and stuff. Now, it is coming out the exact same weekend as Detective Pikachu. Well, I know what I'm seeing that weekend. <laughs> I feel like that might not be great timing. But then again, maybe I'm overestimating the number of people who want to see uh, Pikachu do detective work. I don't know. Who is playing Mr. Tolkien? Okay, so it's an entirely British cast, and I don't know them very well. But, uh, so, it's this guy, Nicholas Holt. And he basically oh, looks he was, um, like Benedict Cumberbatch. He was a beast in the recent yes, X-Men movies. Yes, he was. They mentioned he was... that he was beast in the recent X-Men movies. But if you look at him, he's got kind of like Benedict Cumberbatch face. I think he was, was he the little boy in Love Actually? Or About a Boy? Um, I never saw About a Boy. Mm. I don't think he's the little boy in Love Actually, because that boy could do gymnastics. Well, you might be right. But anyway, what's most interesting about this announcement, which for some reason is on the GameSpot website... <laughs> The paragraph where it explains Tolkien's relationship with his wife, thusly. The movie will also focus on Tolkien's wife, Edith Bratt. The relationship between Tolkien and Bratt was supposedly the inspiration for Tolkien's Baron and Luthien story. Oh, okay. Which itself inspired the Aragorn-Arwen relationship in Peter Jackson's The Lord of the Rings series. Well. Kind of? Not really, though. It kind of makes it sound like Peter Jackson invented Aragorn and Arwen's yeah, relationship, doesn't it? Like, a little bit? But they fleshed it out more in those movies, right? They did, but it's still, it's almost right. It's almost right. It's not quite right. But points for trying GameSpot.com. Okay. Who, for some reason, is posting upcoming movie announcements now. Who's playing her? Lily Collins, the actress daughter of singer Phil Collins. Lily Collins. She's been in something, I think. Well, presumably. She is an actress. Actresses tend to be in things. I'll think of it later. Actresses be being in things. But yeah, so that's coming out in May. Cool. Will it be any good? We'll have to see. What do you got? It's not really news. I don't know why this article came out yesterday, but it did. It's on ScreenRant.com. George Lucas explained why Chewbacca didn't get a medal in 1977. Oh my god, I've been wondering that since 1977. I've literally been wondering that since 10 years prior to my conception, why Chewbacca didn't get a medal. So what this is referring to is at the end of A New Hope, Luke gets a medal for his bravery, Han gets a medal for his bravery, Chewbacca gets zilch. I always assumed he rejected the medal because he's an anarchist, and he doesn't accept arbitrary tokens from arbitrary figureheads. No, you're not that far off, actually. Oh, really? Um, George Lucas actually answered this question back in 1977. He recorded a bunch of little questions that people asked him about the characters. And so someone asked him, why didn't you get a medal? And he said, Chewbacca wasn't giving a medal because medals don't really mean much to Wookiees. They don't really put too much value in them. They have different kinds of ceremonies. The Wookiee Chewbacca was, in fact, given a great prize and honor during a ceremony with his own people. The whole contingent from the Rebel Alliance went to Chewbacca's people and participated in a very 
large celebration. It was an honor for the entire Wookiee race. Now, the question is, was he thinking that when they recorded that scene? Or was he just like, oops, and well, then came up with that after the fact? Peter Mayhew argues, the actor of Chewbacca, uh, one, they didn't have enough money to buy me a medal. <laughs> that sounds more accurate. Or two, Carrie Fisher couldn't reach my neck. So it was probably too expensive to build a little step so I could step down and she could step up and give me the medal. <laughs> So. That, that, see that that holds that's that's got more sand to it to my way of thinking but it did say in 2015 there was a chewbacca miniseries comic which is canon under the disney label and chewie uh, meets a little girl who speaks shriwook and he gives her his rebel alliance medal what and planet he got one at some point so he did get one at some point maybe they just forgot to make enough for him at the actual ceremony and then later they're like hey no i think they gave it to him on the ceremony on kashik they okay, uh, maybe that would make sense right and Chewie's like, yeah, I didn't really want it anyway. And the little girl's like, yeah, it would kind of clash with your whole warrior vibe. So kind of, you know, paying some lip service back to the old George Lucas quote. All of- right. Okay. Anyway, I don't I'm know why that was I'm very glad that that is finally sorted after the decades of wondering. I mean, Our was, nation's long nightmare ends. It was literally answered 42 years ago, though. So, <laughs> it kind um, of was. Screen, screen rant. We should call you screen reach because you're reaching. Yeah. But good news. Thanks for telling us. Sure. Thanks for telling us, Ryan. Well, anyway, let's get down to it, should we? Okay. All right. So guess what we're talking about today, Ryan? I'll give you a hint. Okay. So we're talking about magic. Wow. Did you get it? We've talked about wizards before. Isn't that magic at its height? Yes and no, as you will find out, because Tolkien has a very, very particular definition of what is and isn't magic. In an unsent letter, Tolkien said the following about magic in his universe. I am afraid I have been far too casual about magic, and especially the use of the word. Though Galadriel and others show by the criticism of the mortal use of the word that the thought about it is not altogether casual. But it is a very large question, and difficult, and a story which is largely about motives. But the letter is unsent. Does it count? Does it? Does it? I don't know. He didn't send it. So he he didn't said, send mm, it. I don't agree with anything in this letter. I'm not going to send it. Now, in terms of Galadriel's criticism of the mortal use of the word, she says, For this is what your folk would call magic, I believe, though I do not understand clearly what they mean, and they seem also to use the same word of the deceits of the enemy. But so- those are Tolkien's words. Well, yeah, in Galadriel's mouth. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So so I know, I know. I love how he's like, um, you just need to, like, look to Galadriel for, for, for her thoughts on this. It's like, those are your thoughts, J.R.R. Like, char- she has a character created by you, J.R.R. Tolkien. He's probably like, well, these characters, they live in my head. They just write their stories, write themselves. I can't even control them sometimes. I'm just like the vessel for their crazy, zany adventures. People who say that are twee to the point where it honestly should be a felony. But it I, I swear, be, I don't write this stuff. It's to be that tweet. Galadriel wrote it Shut herself. Up. I didn't Shut think she was going to do I that. I don't like that. I don't like that. I hate when people are that cutesy about it. Shut up. You're the one that wrote it. It comes from you. Shut up. It's called an imagination. So basically, though, to yeah. return to the point, Galadriel's point is that the human definition of magic is too broad. And this is an attitude that Tolkien seemed to share, at least in terms of its classification in Middle-earth. Okay. One theme you'll see throughout this episode is that a lot of the things we would consider magic, Tolkien and his characters just considered being, like, smart and cool. Oh, okay. So first, let's go through the beings of Tolkien's word in terms of their magical abilities or lack thereof. All right, let's hear about it. First, we have the Valar and the Maiar, i.e. 
gods, basically. Yeah, the right? biggest magic there is. Yes. Now, back when you were a good Christian kid, did you consider Jesus to be magical? Mm, that's a hard question. I mean, he healed people by touching them. He transformed food. Yes. He rose from the dead. That's a lot of wizard stuff, isn't it? But I'm not talking about... In hindsight, I'm talking about at the time, did you consider him magic? Mm, I don't know. I'd have to go back and ask myself. Well, I didn't. Okay, I probably didn't either then. All right, so Jesus is Jesus, right? He's like a god. So it's not like he's a magician sawing a lady in half and going like... Oh, he wasn't doing that. I'm he saying did. he wasn't doing that. Last week, Joanna said this would... She liked my songs last week. She said, I'm going to do a musical extravaganza next week. And and have I not delivered? Are you not entertained? There are two songs so far, and we are about five minutes in. There are going to be so many more. Okay. I have to say, if Jesus had done that, by the way, like he probably would have blown the Romans' minds out the back of their skulls. Or performed the Steve Miller song? Performed <laughs> the Steve Miller just... Jesus' seemingly supernatural powers are just like a thing Jesus can do because of what Jesus is, i.e. God, right? Well, in some versions of the religion. Shut up, Ryan. So, I know, <laughs> that is correct, but we are not here to debate theology. Okay, okay. So, Tolkien seems to have viewed Valar and Meyer magic in much the same way. Because they were basically angelic beings, the Valar and Meyer could shape the world according to their natures. Uh, well, I mean, like, most of them could, right? So Morgoth, by virtue of being a chode, was not able to create anything. He was only able to screw up what his brethren had made. He couldn't build the sandcastle, but he could knock it down. Oh, he sure could, and he did. Now, in Morgoth's Ring, which is the fifth volume of uh, Christopher Tolkien's exhaustive history of Middle-earth, it's explained that Morgoth sort of diluted his own power intentionally right from the get-go. So the book says, quote, To gain domination over Arda, Morgoth had let most of his being pass into the physical constituents of the Earth, which meant that everything that was born or lived on Earth, like beasts, plants, and incarnate spirits, were going to be tainted. So, in other words, Morgoth had a choice. He could keep his power concentrated inside of him and just be an absolute maniac within a close proximity, or he could spread his magic out and make everyone and everything just a little bit evil. Just a little bit. Make him suck at least just a little bit. And he chose the latter. Wait, he did? He chose the latter. That's wild. Because he was a chode. So everyone on Middle-earth's a little bit evil? Yeah. It's, uh... Even trees and... and Everything. Like, everything sucks just a little bit. So you might recognize this as being similar to the Christian concept of original sin. Yeah, I was gonna say, it's exactly the same. Well, and since this is Tolkien we're talking about, that's probably not a coincidence. Sure. It's also not what Tolkien probably would have considered magic. At least no more magic than, like, the devil making a little girl barf pea soup or something. It's just what the devil does. Mm, okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. It's kind of kind of nebulous, but yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, one interesting comment that Christopher Tolkien makes in Morgoth's Ring is that in the One Ring, Sauron's relatively smaller power was hyper-concentrated, making him extraordinarily dangerous at close range when he was wearing it. Okay. However, for Morgoth, all of Middle-earth was essentially his ring. Wow. <gasps> Let that sink in. <gasps> but, hang on, there's a lot of people. Yes. He doesn't have that much power then, does he? He, well, I mean, there like, weren't as many people back then. Consider that. Unless he get all Consider that. Them. People had just been invented, Ryan. He would only be super strong if he's like, everybody come to my birthday party. Everyone gather together. Mm. Well, I mean, the closer you got to him. No, that's not true, actually. No, that makes sense. Everything's just um, equally, diffuse, equally screwed on a diffuse level. But his power is monumentally larger than Sauron's. So he's got like homeopathic evil. 
You just gotta over yeah, dilute it. He dilutes it down, dilutes it down, and the more you dilute it, the worse it sucks. Okay. So essentially, the world is Satan's ring. Which sounds like either a shoddy translation of a Scandinavian metal song or something your friend's roommate says after doing a bunch of whippets. <laughs> what do you know about whippets? <laughs> I know everything about whippets. What if you had whippets? I my friend of a friend did 30 whippets at his house. And Ipso, that is a story that I know. Ipso facto. Ipso facto, you, I know about whippets. I also know that Demi Moore was addicted to them. It's also a type of dog. It's also a type of dog. Very cute Demi type Demi Moore of dog. loves those dogs. She loves those dogs. She snorted them all up her nose. That's <laughs> how much she loves them. So many dogs up Demi Moore's nose. Anyway, okay. let's talk a little bit more about Sauron's breed of magic. Or just natural ability, depending on how you look at it. Let's talk about what it actually did to people. Okay. So, as the Lord of the Rings and its various adaptations make clear, Sauron used his powers to manipulate objects and his slaves. So, he could also pass some of his power to those slaves, as he did with the Black Numenorians and the men who became Nazgul. And these slaves were thus able to use Sauron's power to do sorcery. Okay. I wonder if it counts as magic then. Well, sorcery equals magic. Well, yeah. Plus, those abilities, they weren't innate to men, and they came from outside them. Okay. So, wouldn't that be magic? In fact, Ryan, in my personal opinion... It's a kind of magic. It's a kind of magic. (laughs) It's a kind of magic. It's a kind of magic. As my best friend Freddie Mercury and my other best friend Christopher Lambert would say, it's a kind of magic. Would Tolkien agree with you? Almost certainly not. Man, that's magic. Well, actually, no. You know what, though? No, no. You'll you'll see. We'll dig into this. It's a little more complicated than that. Okay. Anyway, because these acts of corruption required Sauron to put his will and power into other things and people, they lessened him as they did his master before him. Every time he corrupted someone, his power grew lesser. So in other words, he didn't have an unlimited supply. Mm, Okay. Which kind of makes it seem less like natural godlike power and more like mana or something. It's not like mana, because MP's all out. Yeah, except your priest will never replenish it for you because he got not only kicked off the server, but also launched into space. By the way, the good Valor and Meyer also had similar limits. So for example, Yavanna could not remake the light of the two trees of Valinor, and the only hope for them to be restored would be to reclaim the light captured from them in the Silmarils. She couldn't just remake it. She had limits. Gads have limits in Tolkien. Magic has to have rules. Yes. Now, the Istari, a.k.a. the wizards that you talked about earlier, were the Maiar who came to Middle-earth in the diminished form of men and were tasked with helping to guide the free peoples against Sauron. The nature of the Istari was not known to all, and they were mostly known as wise old men. And they were called wizards, um, and in English we typically use the term to mean an old guy who can do honest-to-goodness magic. But Harry Potter's a wizard, and he's a boy! I don't care about Harry Potter, I'm talking about wizard. I'm talking about classic old man with a big beard wizard, like Merlin. I'm talking about Harry Potter. Like Dumbledore! Yeah, like Dumbledore. Okay. Like that guy. Like Dumbledore, but not like Grindelwald, because no self-respecting wizard would be Johnny Depp. Good point. However, in Tolkien's mythology, the word wizard is a translation of the Quenya Istar, which means one of the members of an order, quote, order, right? So that's essentially the translation, right? Um, This order that claimed to possess and exhibit eminent knowledge of the history and nature of the world. So like Freemasons. (laughs) Yeah, like 19th level Freemasons. Wow. So basically Tolkien didn't see the wizards as magical, but just as a bunch of dudes who knew a lot. Smart boys. Yeah, so they don't have powers, they just know a lot about nature. Which makes it seem that any being with sufficient time and energy to devote to studying nature could become as powerful as one of the Istari, I guess? I don't think so. Well, it doesn't seem to work out that way in Tolkien anyway. 
But what about Gandalf's powers? He's able to, like, turn a room dark. He's able to, like, stab a staff in the ground and make a big uh, force field come out of it. Because he knows a lot. It's not magic, Ryan. He just knows a lot. He just knows... He's just really smart, and he knows things, and he reads books. He knows how to make his voice make a room go dark. That's crazy. Yeah, he knows that. He knows that. Where can I learn that? You you can't. Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. Shut up about that. All right, of all the beings in Middle-earth, though, the ones that do come closest to wizard power are, of course... Tom Bombadil. El- well, yeah, okay, Tom Bombadil, but Tom Bombadil might also be a Meyer. Oh, we no, don't know sure, that. you're right. We don't okay, know that. Yeah. I was going to say elves! All right, so, yeah. Elves, in the earliest days, they knew the powers of the Valar and Meyer and were even tutored by them. Oh, really? So, you know what I talk about people who know a lot. So, the elves were taught arts and crafts... <laughs> Wait, really? Is that what it says? That's arts, literally what it says? It literally says arts and crafts by well, the Valar. Okay, as an art history major, arts and crafts meant something different at the turn of the century, like the 1900s, than it does nowadays. Arts and crafts, I think, nowadays is like, you know, using popsicle sticks to make a god's eye or using fun foam to make, you know, a whimsical snowman design. Where back in the day, it was more like folk art stuff, like baskets and that's like, what this means okay. that's the definition that i think and like, that they're using quilts here. and there's a yes. whole arts and crafts movement that was like saying this stuff is just as important as these renaissance paintings yes. because it's created you can't distinguish like this is high art and this right. is low art just because it's crap okay cool same kind yes. of thing right yeah same kind of thing so elves were taught arts and crafts by the valor in valinor and they put dedication and love in everything they wrought just like your nana well just like they, when they made their swords and stuff and they, like the glamdering and, and they put love the in hammer. all of them okay so elves could reach really high levels of mastery in arts crafts and lore to the point where it seemed magical to mortals so again it wasn't magical ability it was just like knowing stuff again so could they like make a room go dark if they lowered their voice really a lot and if they knew enough or trifle with wizards they have to know that thing but if they knew it they could do wow. it if they knew as much about making rooms go dark as they did about crafts so magic is basically on par with being super good at quilting wow so that means that when it comes to your nana Well, I hope not everything she right. do just turn you on. I didn't listen to that part of the song before I played it. I hope that that is not the case. Yeah, I was going to say, you probably should have maybe screened these songs a little better. So just like doing a Google search for songs with magic in the title. That is literally what I did, Ryan. <laughs> literally what I did. So, like Sauron, the elves had rings of power and also lesser rings. And these objects would have seemed magical to men. So, for example, some might give the wearer invisibility, which was actually the ability to walk in the unseen world. Sounds like magic to me. Uh, well, it would because you're a man. Other elven artifacts that would seem magic to men were the Palantiri. Magic. The Lamps of the Noldor. And the Mirror of Galadriel. Some simpler artifacts that also might have been considered magic were the riverboats of the Galadrim. I think those seem to go by themselves. elven ropes, which seem to have wheels of their own and untie themselves. And what about lemnus bread and stuff like that? Yeah, lemnus bread too. Magic food. Yes. But remember, in the strictest sense of the word, these objects only seemed magic. And that was because men were big dumb babies who didn't know anything. Not all men. Now, yeah. I'm one of them. I'm a dumb man. You're one of them. You're a dumb man. I think that looks like magic to me. Now, other things that elves were great at to the point where it looked magical included healing and medicine. Mm. Elves had skill with these areas. So when Frodo was wounded by a Morgul blade, for instance, Glorfindel basically just stuck his finger in the wound and Frodo was like, ah. Really? Yeah. So no magic words, no chance, no medicine even, just Glorfindel's knowledgeable ass, presumably unsterilized finger in his wound. That sounds like magic, but not like, it sounds like 
it sounds like some dark arts to me. Well, it, it, it's not, we are actually going to talk about dark magic later. Oh, okay. Now, additionally, elven minstrels like Finrod Felagund and Luthien had power in their songs. So, for example, Finrod strove against Sauron in song and made great progress, but was ultimately overpowered with a dire chant. Oh, gosh. I searched dire chant on YouTube, and this is what I got. Would you be overpowered by this dire chant? Overpowered to take it. Well, it's. Would it help if I told you that this was all about the Judgment Day and the Second Coming of Christ? The intro, at least, is pretty sleepy. Well, here, let's see if it if it gets if it gets more dire towards the end. Nope. No, it's it's pretty much more of the same. But anyway, okay. But that's according to YouTube what a dire chant is. So just go with it, okay? Now we've also mentioned that Luthien who was half Maya, was able to use stronger enchantments to disguise herself in Baron, and she mesmerized Morgoth with her singing and dancing. She's a bard, level 20, with her epic archetype. She literally mesmerized Satan, and you're going to put her at level 20? That's the highest level you can go in D&D. Is it? Yes. Oh. Let's move on to dwarven magic. Ooh, hey, magic? Well... Such as it was, yeah. So it was pretty much entirely concentrated on construction work. Summon bulldozer. Indeed, even more specific than that, it was pretty much entirely concentrated on doors. So, for example, the doors of Durin open by themselves upon saying the word Melon without visible machinery or other assistance. That's pretty magic. Well, yeah. And the elven door was created by the dwarven craftsman Narvi and inscribed by the elf lord Celebrimbor with letters and signs fashioned in... A material called Ithildin, which was like this magical seeming substance that had mithril mixed into it. Okay. So you could look at this door as magic, or you could look at it as just like technology, man. But Celebrimbor, did he whisper a little bit of magical knowledge into it no, on the way man. out? We don't he just, know that. Like, use this magical substance, and it's just technology. He just gave a little smooch on the way out, and it's like, now I can open on my own. I mean, to a caveman, like, an automatic door would seem magic, right? No visible machinery. It just opens. Sure. Now, another dwarven door is seen in The Hobbit. So the back door of the Lonely Mountain was a hidden seamless door, which had a keyhole that would be only revealed on Durin's Day. And the, the key lines that may infer possibly an enchantment on the door are these. Quote, a gleam of light came straight through the opening into the bay and fell on the smooth rock face. The old thrush gave a sudden trill. There was a loud crack. A flake of rock split from the wall and fell. A hole appeared suddenly about three feet from the ground. That sounds like magic. Well, it could be physical magic. It could. Or again, it could just be the dwarves being real damn good. Now, let's move on to something a little closer to home. Man magic. Mans don't got magic. Well... They don't, or do they? So follow me here. A okay. member of the race of men wielding magical powers would be referred to as a sorcerer, whether good or evil. And according to Tolkien's unsent letter that we mentioned at the top of the show, the concept of magic in his world did not come from lore spells, and men therefore did not have magic. Mm. So by this definition, mannish lore, like knowing the language of an animal, would not be considered magical in Middle-earth, merely knowledgeable. So talking to animals is not magic? No, Ryan, it's not. What? They're just smart, okay? <gasps> but this was contradicted, though, by stuff okay. Tolkien wrote elsewhere. Directly contradicted. So, for example, Aragorn has magical healing powers. Tolkien's justification for this is that, quote, Aragorn is not a pure man, but had long removed one of the children of Luthien. Got that that Maya in him, right? Well, yeah, it's so sliver yeah. It. So it's because he has this like sliver of Maya blood in him. Okay, sure. But then in the Fellowship of the Ring at the doors of Durin, Gandalf said, "Quote: I once knew every spell in all the tongues of elves or men or orcs." 
that were ever used for such a purpose. I can still remember ten score of them without searching my mind. So what the hell? Like, suddenly men have spells mm. and so do orcs? Was, um, since when? Um, sir? That was not in a letter. That was in an actual book. Yes, so... So I think the book supersedes the letter. Possibly, because it was actually published. Right. By the end of the letter, incidentally, that we've been discussing, Tolkien seems to confuse himself, and he writes, But the Numenorians use spells in making swords? Question mark. That's up to you, buddy. <laughs> yeah, like he, was, he just got himself all turned around. So basically, do men have magic, or don't they? Even Tolkien didn't know. Okay. But... You know who does know? Probably a song related to the word this magic. Bruno Mars knows. I mean, he's a man. He knows. And magic in this is dressing really nice at the club and putting your pinky rings skyward. 24 carat implies that the gold is the source of his magic. Yeah. Bruno Mars is a sorcerer of gold. He is a sorcerer, and I think that's the final word on the matter. He's also able to summon the voice of a prince-like person or a Michael Jackson-ish entity. Look, if this is your roundabout cute way of saying that Bruno Mars is a derivative spirit, because everybody knows. No, no, I love it. I'm just saying he's able to ape their styles very well. He is. He is. That is kind of his thing. Let's talk about dark magic. Oh no, I'm not Ooh. ready for the dark arts class, Mr. Snape. Ooh, turn to page 394. I don't actually remember if that was the page. Is that the page? I don't know. Ten board from Gryffindor. That's better. Okay, so Cinderin has two words for dark magic, Morgul and Goldor. And the element ghoul literally means magic lore or long study, and the negative connotations include necromancy and sorcery. Meanwhile, mm. more translates to dark or night, and dur means dark or somber. So morgul, as used in the phrase, Frodo was stabbed with a morgul blade, literally means dark magic blade. Likewise, Minas Morgul means Tower of Dark Magic, and Guldur, as in Dol Guldur, means something like Magic of the Dark or Study of the Dark. They really love those sounds of evil in Cinder, don't they? Morguldur, Guldur, Morgul. I mean, they just sound bad. Morgul, Guldur, They sound like they'd be a bad thing. Gurgle, Morgul, Gurgle, And think of what, what, you know, the source material that Tolkien might have been drawing from. For example, Mordred. Mordred, yes. In the Arthurian legends. Mm -hmm, Not mm -hmm, a good guy. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Ditto Morwen. Ditto ghouls. Ditto ghouls? Ghouls sound real bad. Tolkien knew this. He and knew that these dur, things sounded bad. That's what a dum-dum says. That's what a dumb idiot says. And he's all says. about knowledge. A ghoul going, dur. That's basically what he was trying to evoke. Mogul, dul Now, any dark magic in Tolkien seems to have its ultimate roots in Morgoth. So, for example, the magic of Sauron was based directly upon the physical legacy of his previous master. In Morgoth's ring, Christopher Tolkien writes, The Morgoth element in matter was a prerequisite for such magic and other evils as Sauron practiced with it and upon it. So Sauron's dark magic powers include power over the dead and spirits, such as when he summoned the Barrow Whites to the Barrow Downs. All right, yes. Now, one of the interesting things that Tolkien writes in that unsent letter we keep talking about is that the line between dark magic and light magic is not entirely distinct. So the area of discussion in the letters is the difference between magia and getia, with magia, physical magic, usually noted as good, and getia, charm and conjuring magic, is bad. Incidentally, mm. you know who else used the term getia, like, a lot? Who? Alistair Crowley. Oh. So it's because it's often specifically associated with summoning demons. They're at the same time. Do they know each other? Tolkien and Crowley? I'm almost positive they probably knew of each other in passing. 
But I, I very much doubt they ran in the same circles. Think Crowley was can a imagine, hobbit head? Can you, was... you imagine Alistair Crowley showing up at one of their little, little literary get-togethers with, like, Tolkien and, like, C.S. Lewis and, and when Alistair Crowley shows up in his dumbass hat? Yeah. They would not have stood for it. Many harumps <laughs> lobbed his way. Uh, anyway, here's a song about summoning demons. It's born his knees and repeat after me. I don't even know this one. <laughs> I know, I found it. Take a sip on my secret potion. I don't know. I don't either. 493 million views. It's got almost half a billion views and we've never heard this song right. This is how old we're getting. Jeez. Oh my god, she just turned her purple. I have not watched this video. She made an orb. Holy cow. This is, this is by a girl group called Little Mix. It's called Black Magic. She made an office desk accessory. Yeah. They're floating. It's called Black Magic. This is encouraging our young women to become witches. Uh, I think it probably is, and, and that's okay. I'm fine with that. They need the magic to change him overnight. They need the magic to wear clothes that expose their midriffs, at least on two of them. I, I always wonder what school girls are going to in these music videos, because my school was extremely patriarchal and would not let you have exposed midriffs or shoulders or thighs. Basically, all of these outfits would be illegal. Like maybe girl on the left, she's wearing like a sweater and like a under like a turtleneck underneath. I uh, know because the I bet not long her fingers, her fingertips go down past her skirt. Yep. Yep. She, yep. Yeah. So anyway, that's called black magic. Wow. Yeah. Did you know? Thanks for educating <laughs> me about it. Uh... That's how old we've gotten, Ryan. That song has five hundred million, almost half a billion views, and we've never heard of it. Cool. Anywho, Tolkien wrote that, quote, Neither magia nor getia is, in this tale, good or bad per se, but only by motive or purpose or use. Both sides use both, but with different motives. The evil motive was its use to dominate free will. Mm -hmm. So the enemy used his magia to bulldoze both people and things and used his getia to terrify and subjugate. Now, right, right. the elves in Gandalf sparingly used magia for specific beneficial purposes, like burning pine cones to toss at the wargs. That's magic. And, well, it's magia. And their getic effects were entirely artistic and not intended to deceive. They never deceived elves, but they may deceive or bewilder unaware men. But what are you going to do? Men are stupid. I mean, it's fine. It's like, we don't intend to scare them. They're just stupid. Is there an example of them doing that in books? Um, I mean, I guess I would say, like, whatever weird illusions Thoranduil was making appear in Mirkwood Forest oh, okay. in the book when the dwarves were all sort of following like that 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 forest has some weird illusory powers. Well, he does his glamour in the movie. He does in the movie. He also has a glamour. I am not sure if that would be considered canon, but yeah. So you know stuff like that. Okay. And elves would know what was up, and just because your race is too stupid to know that it's fake, doesn't mean it's evil. It's all relative. I kind of feel like the devil could say the same thing, though. Like, just because the human race is, like, too stupid to know mm -hmm. that I'm messing with them, doesn't mean I'm bad. It just means they're really stupid. They could stop any time. They're just too dumb. They're just too stinking dumb. Anyway, here's some miscellaneous types of magic I haven't been able to shoehorn in elsewhere, so... You got songs for these? <laughs> oh, oh, do I. So, Boromir and Faramir have, quote, true dreams about the One Ring and the Halfling. And Glorfindel prophesies the nature of the Witch King's doom. And also both the Maya Melian and her descendant Elrond are known to possess the gift of foresight, allowing them to sense and see what is to come. Excellent. Right? What song goes with that? Um, let's see. <laughs> Hold on. 
the music that always plays when Boromir has a prophetic dream. <laughs> Elrond's using the gift of foresight. He's seeing a the guitar with the Brazil flag on it. Also, the amp has Brazil on it. This guy must be Brazilian, or he likes soccer. I think we've heard enough. That's a, that's a song about prophecy. Okay. So, sexy voices is another thing I haven't been able to talk about. Oh. So, Saruman's voice is also clearly magical. Gandalf warns everyone about his voice, which had powers beyond their imagination. So, Theoden, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli decide in the book to go with Gandalf to get a first-hand view of Saruman. Well, I guess they do it in the movie, too. Well, sure. Yeah. So, when Saruman did appear, his voice sounded like the sweetest anyone had ever heard. Whoa. So, he spoke to Theoden, and he tried to persuade him to be his friend, like, hey, bro, we should be buddies. I'll let you come over and play Smash, and I'll even give you the controller with good response time, bro. Fox only. No items. Final destination. <laughs> so Gandalf, Gandalf didn't say a word because he had to let Theoden make his own choice, apparently. Apparently, that's what he had to do. Either succumb to Saruman's wizardry or fight it. Gimli was not taken in, and neither was Aemir, evidently not Smash fans. Aww. And eventually, Theoden was able to control himself and rejected Saruman's appeal. So, Theoden's men had fallen under Saruman's spell and were confused by their leader's rejection. And then, <gasps> but at that point, Saruman was angered and his voice changed, and the men realized their mistake in falling for his tricks. Because Saruman was like, Fine! I lied! I don't even have a Nintendo Switch! And Theoden's guys were like, Wait a minute, he's not cool at all! I mean, uh, to be fair, if Christopher Lee said to come over and play Smash Brothers with him, I would go in an instant. Christopher Lee does have a voice sweeter beyond all imagination. Do we have a song for these sweet voices? Oh, hold on. <laughs> Just wait till you see my. Wait till you see my. Oh. Wait till you see my. Wait till you see my. Oh. I'm beat that beat that dog. I was gonna censor it, but you know, I, they, they did the hard work for me. They did it for you. And it's far better than you would have been able to do. Yeah, wow. Saruman, please. <laughs> that was Saruman. Yeah. So now, with that, yeah. I want to ask you a question. Do you believe in magic in a young girl's heart? You didn't mention anything about young girl's hearts. I mean, Luthien was a young girl and who then, had a heart. Yes, I do. Okay, great. Then I've converted you, which was apparently my motive. I just decided. Okay. Wow, that's, thanks for the learning. Yeah, you're welcome. Do you want to take a quick break? I would love to. Okay. Oh, ho, ho, it's magic, you know, never believe it's not so. I've told you all about magic. Are you going to tell me about magic in the Star Wars universe? Well, kind of. I want to outline first, you know Arthur C. Clarke? I know of him, but I don't know that much about him because I'm not a nerd. Just kidding. You've read 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah, just kidding. I actually have. So he's got three laws. Different from Asimov's laws of robotics, I'm assuming. Well, completely different. Okay. So his first law, when a distinguished but elderly scientist states that something is possible, he is almost certainly right. When he says that something is impossible, he is very probably wrong. Clark's second law, the only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible. Now, the third law is probably the most famous one you've probably heard the most. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. It's a kind of magic. I mean, it is. So <laughs> It's a kind of magic. So it's Star Wars. There's yes. a lot of technology that works in outrageous and incredible ways that... To the point where it might as well just be magic. Now here's the prediction I make. Mine was all about how Tolkien wrote magic and tried to pass it off as like technology. Yours is going to be all about George Lucas writing in technology that's basically magic. Pretty much. Now what? 
there's a lot of technology in Star Wars, right? A lot of different cool devices and gadgets and stuff. What do you think is the most impressive uh, piece of technology that would be like the most impossible in real life? Um, moving things with your mind. Okay, besides the Force. Oh, okay. But that is, they do make that, trying to make that scientific though. Metachlorians. Yes. We're not going to talk about those today. We All talked right. about Force powers already. Episode two of our podcast, I talk about Force powers. What's what kind of, but you're talking about the kind of thing that they absolutely could not I'm do. talking about like hard tech, you know, like like machines and, and ships. Warp and... speed, going faster than the speed of light. Lucky you, you cannot said that. do that. I'm talking about hyperspace today. Aha! Which is, it turns out, very detailed on Wikipedia. Were you nervous that I wasn't going to pick hyperspace? No, I would get to it eventually. I would have to keep guessing. Oh, okay. So let's learn about what the legend side of Wikipedia has to say about hyperdrives and Tell hyperspace. Tell me the legends of hyperspace. The hyperdrive was a vital starship engine system that allowed vessels to traverse the vast distances of space faster than light speed. In numbers, the hyperdrive allowed travelers to traverse a galaxy spanning over 120,000 light years in only a few hours or days. The exact travel time depending on a number of factors including destination, point of origin, route, and class of hyperdrive. Wow, jeez. Yes. But does it? are you going to tell me how it was invented, though? Oh, I'm because getting it sounds, to it. Oh, you are? Okay, because it's it. not possible. The hyperdrive was generally built from a titanium-chromium compound. This compound was specially designed to allow hyperdrives to withstand the continual stress caused by traveling between the dimensions of real space and hyperspace. Well, that's great, but, I mean, you also have to make sure that the human beings inside well, the ship can withstand that, too. So, the way... It works in Star Wars is that they're they're going into an alternate dimension where they can travel beyond the speed of light called hyperspace. Hyperspace is an alternate dimension of space-time that can only be entered with faster-than-light speeds using a hyperdrive. Hyperspace was coterminous with real space, the unique point in real space being associated with the unique point in hyperspace. Okay, now wait a second. Okay. So you need to go into a parallel dimension where faster than light travel is possible. Yes. But to get to that parallel dimension, you need to be in a vessel that is capable of faster than light travel. So you already need to be going faster than light to get to the dimension where you can do faster than light. We're getting there. Okay. <laughs> Just say, I have this right. Yes, right? you not- have it right. Okay, okay. Normally, baryonic matter, which is made of protons and neutrons, you know, the stuff we're made of. Yes. In real space would obey physical principles of relativity. They would increase asymptotically in mass as it accelerated toward the speed of light requiring more and more energy to approach it but even at infinite values never surpassing the speed of light threshold this is einstein's speed limit yeah right yeah speed of light it's like i can't remember but it's something times 10 to the something it's very very high level yes but tachyonic matter on the other hand existed at values solely above the speed of light they can't go slower than the speed of light and thus like speed and could not decrease lower than the light speed barrier Whoa. So hyperdrive technology allowed sentients to go past that barrier, making use of a trans-physical effect to create ripples in space-time. A hyperdrive-equipped ship would prote- propel off these ripples to... Into hyperspace, allowing it to traverse the galaxy at speeds of hundreds of even thousands of times the speed of light. You're such a jerk. You found out that I was going to be doing music. You had to throw that in. You're such an a-hole. You're going to hear the word jump a lot. <laughs> okay, good. Now, okay, I I, I want to reiterate my previous comment that this is like the movie speed. Yeah, they can't go slower than 16 miles per hour or the Millennium Falcon blows up. So, so far, are you following this awesome technology that's super realistic and has lots of scientific terms in it? Is tachyonic a real thing or did Star Wars make it up? Tachyon's a real thing scientists are studying as far as like hypothetical physics. Yes. And they're like these particles that theoretically are faster than the speed of light. Theoretically. Theoretically. But we'll never be going faster than the speed of light, so we'll never find out. Unless you have a hyperdrive. So the process of entering hyperspace was known as a... 
Hyperdrive used transphysical effect to launch the Starship beyond light speed into hyperspace, making use of a superlight hypermatter particles to make the hyperspace jump without changing the ship's complex configuration of mass and energy. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I don't think that would work. Is he making sense? Are you following? This is, this it is basically, simple. It works because it works. To enter hyperspace, the Starship's pilot enter commands via paralyte systems, a combination of mechanical and electro-optical subsystems that translate the commands into a set of corresponding reactions within the hyperdrive power plants. The process of hyperspace began with the collection of gamma radiation by the hyperdrive field guide. The hyperdrive motivator, the primary light speed thrust initiator, built up and modified the collected radiation diffusion generator through several kilometers of charge planes, effect channels, and loop superconductive wire. To hyperspace, the hyperdrive's horizontal boosters would provide energy to the motivator's ionization chamber to begin ignition that released the radiation through the alluvial dampeners. The energy release caused ripples in the time-space matrix, allowing the ship to propel off the ripples into hyperspace. Okay, so none of that makes sense. Hold on, give it to me. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to simplify this down. Okay. Like, get rid of all the techno babble. Please do. To enter hyperspace, the Starship's pilot would enter commands. To enter hyperspace, the hyperdrive's boosters would provide energy. The energy release causes ripples into hyperspace. You got it. There we go. So they're going off the ripples of space-time. I am familiar with the idea of space-time not being a flat plane. It's that whole thing in every single movie about, like, faster-than-light space travel where there's like, so you want to get to one side of the paper, you gotta go in a straight line, but what if, and they fold it in half and they stab a pencil through it, you could go through but the paper. But that's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about going through the paper. It's talking about going into a, another piece of paper that exists beside that paper. Also, you fold the paper, but then you just stunt off the fold. You don't, like, go through yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, you're more, more like paper surfing rather than stabbing through the paper. Paper surfing onto a separate sheet of paper. So, when a ship... In the hyperspace, it seemed to accelerate so rapidly that passengers within the vessel saw the stars stretched out into parallel lines during the The hyperspace. This apparent acceleration was also observable from outside the vessel, where a ship jumping into hyperspace would appear to undergo a sudden massive burst of speed. You missed one. Oh, sh- Where a ship into hyperspace would appear to undergo a sudden massive burst of speed and disappear from the physical universe. This phenomenon is referred to as pseudomotion. False motion. Okay, so that doesn't... Pseudo... Okay, uh, maybe it is a real scientific term, but to me, it sounds made up because pseudomotion just means false motion. Here's my favorite part of this Legends article, which has so far been scientifically airtight. Mm Mm-hmm. Upon exiting hyperspace, an unknown technology was used to decelerate the starship. An unknown? <laughs> we couldn't even be asked to come up with something fake. Both entrances into and exits from hyperspace created wake rotation and chronal radiation that produced detectable signature often used to reconnoiter fleet movements or by planetary customs authorities. So you come out of hyperspace, yeah, it would leave like a little ripple. And they can like triangulate the They can ripple. triangulate the signal and figure out where you came from. Now out. I'm going to see if chronal radiation is a thing. Okay. Wikipedia. <laughs> Wikipedia is the only thing that comes up, so yes, I'm going to go ahead and say no, it is not. Now, that sounds really dangerous, right? Uh, I mean, theori- I get- it just sounds impossible. Well, there are some safety mechanisms in place. So, inertial dampeners, for one thing, are used to protect the ship, crew, and cargo from being crushed by the tremendous acceleration of the... Once in hyperspace, a null quantum field generator helped stabilize the vessel and kept it prematurely emerging from the alternate dimension. Shields also protected the ship from fatal collisions with interstellar gas and dark matter particles. To prevent the relativistic passing of time while in hyperspace, starships used stasis fields attuned to the hyperdrive levels to keep organic crews and cargoes in time with the standard galactic dimension. So, you know, you don't want to, like, age more than you have to. I mean, nobody wants to age more than they have to. Right. 
so yeah, there's all kinds of things keeping the ship together, keeping it from being destroyed, keeping you on board from becoming an old man instantly. Okay, so more than just safety belts is what you're saying. Right. And I should mention that all these facts I just mentioned, like this nonsense about the technology, comes from a specific book, the YT-1300 Owner's Workshop Manual. So YT-1300 is actually <coughs> the Millennium Falcon's model of ship. So we can... <coughs> Sorry, I'm allergic to bullshit. Yeah. So we can trace all this back to one one guy who wrote this. Yeah, who clearly knew a little bit about like the the theoretical physics behind faster than light travel. But just made a but made a bunch just of, a little, like a very little. Made up a bunch of words to cover his butt. But you know what? It's just sci-fi. It's just for fun. We don't need to sit here and pick it apart. So whatever. I'm back on board. All right. Well, let's go into the history of hyperspace and hyperspace travel. Great. So it was discovered by the Rakata species, also known as the Builders. They're from about 40,000 years before the Battle of Yavin. We've talked about them before, haven't we? We mentioned them a little bit. These are these force-sensitive beings who created these force-powered hyperdrives to get between worlds and spread their empire. They actually stole it from this race of the Qua. I think I talked about them in the, in the first part. I remember part. the Qua, yeah. Like these reptile people who use these infinity gates to go and say, we are the Qua. Here, Rakata, use our technology. And the Rakata are actually like these cannibalistic monsters who just like took the technology and basically turned on the Qua almost immediately. Now, now were they monsters or were they just driven mad with knowledge? They ate each other. No, that's monstrous. So as their empire spread sort of their technology, they were wiped out eventually by a plague that hit them, and it made them lose their connection to the Force. And by doing so, killed all of them off by around the year 1000 BBY. It kills you if you lose connection to the Force? I've never had connection to the Force. Am I going to die? You all are connected to the Force. We're all connected by it, bound together. Then why can't I move shit with my mind? You haven't trained. Oh, okay. Well, I guess uh, if the movies have taught me anything, is that I just need to train with Obi-Wan Kenobi inside a ship en route to some other planet for like an hour, and, and then I'm good. So here's a Rakata. I think we talked about how stupid they look before. Yeah, yeah. Imagine that yeah. being like the progenitor species. Yeah. Like the one that's like Doesn't built... Doesn't make sense. No. But later on, the Corellians, which are Han Solo's people and uh, Wedge Antilles' people, they came up with their own non-force-powered hyperdrives. Really? So they kind of reverse engineered the Rakata technology and made it not have to rely on the force to be used. And so, so they're like, we are the first society to develop a hyperdrive that is not powered by magic. Exactly. Which is what the force is. Yes. Okay. So they made a non-magical hyperdrive. So all that weird technology stuff we were talking about with tachyon that's particles them. and stuff, that's them. So that's why... It's not going to be powered on magic from now on. It's going to be powered on complete bullshit. Theoretical particles. Theoretical bullshit. That's why all of the Corellians are kind of really hotshot pilots because they were one of the first races in the galaxy to develop space travel oh. of their own. <laughs> now, there are some hazards when you travel in hyperspace. Just um, a few. Yeah, yeah. Just a few. Moving at speeds many times the speed of light, there are many dangers. While any collision or interference at this state could be potentially fatal, the effects of gravitational pull on a starship could be particularly devastating. Thus, a course had to be plotted outside the mass shadow or gravity well of large celestial bodies. You don't want to fly too close to a big planet, you're going to get sucked in it. That makes sense. Okay. Hyperspace, so far. Hyperspace collisions, whether they be intentional or by accident, could devastate or even destroy a planet. Considering the fact that the output of reactors of many capital ships like Star Destroyers rivaled or even eclipsed that of a star, one could unleash a great deal of destructive power on a target. So even if a planet had its planetary shielding up at the time of a hyperspace collision, like a, a Star Destroyer comes out of hyperspace and runs into a planet, it could still have the potential to kill millions on a world like Coruscant just due to its fallout. Oh my god, why is this legal? 
Well, Why is this legal? This is like not the kind of thing where you you get in an accident and maybe it causes a 17 car pile up and, and a huge death toll. Yeah, okay, that's a huge death toll. Yeah. This could literally destroy an entire planet, make it extinct, wipe an entire race off the face of history. Was, Why is this legal? It was never done on purpose, except. I don't care that it wasn't done on purpose! It, the fact that it could be done on accident at all means it should be illegal. It was done on purpose in the films. If you remember Admiral Holdo's attack in Last Jedi, that's why the attack was so devastating, is because had like the entire all the reactor energy of the capital ship she was on like exploding basically cutting through the uh super star destroyer god yeah see like the power of a sun behind her basically why is this allowed who is allowing this Okay, so maybe the empire is allowing it because like they're evil okay cool sure but when the new government takes over why do they allow it also when the republic was in charge why did they allow it ostensibly uh, uh, not evil why was this okay because it brings the galaxy together it's a huge place this it's would be like if elon musk yeah. got really high and he's like new idea so we're gonna create a car that can go um into hyperdrive but it needs to use a, a hydrogen bomb and so, like, everything's going to be tickety-boo. Like, I don't think he says tickety-boo, but anyway. No, no problems here, except if it ever gets any collision, it will destroy the planet. We cool? No, Joanna, so... My stock price is going up? Yeah? No, this stuff's been... All right, come on, Grimes. Let's now, go score some whippets. Keep in mind that this technology's been around for thousands of years. And by now, they've charted star routes that are safe. They know exactly where they're going to come out. I do not care, because ostensibly we have charted major roadways in this country and yet people get in deadly accidents all the time you cannot let elon musk make a hydrogen bomb car so i'm pretty mad about this yes it's so irresponsible but 99.9 percent .9 of the time it works it only has to happen once to kill an entire planet there's a lot of planets out there it's fine let's continue Gravity generators could be used to create an artificial interdiction field, which stopped hyperspace travel in a particular area by mimicking the outer fringes of a celestial body's gravity. So the whole idea is, this is another safety feature, it will automatically come out of hyperspace if you're about to hit a planet. If you're about to, like, go into the gravity well of a planet. Oh, well, you didn't tell me that! It will come out of it. You didn't tell me that, Ryan. I didn't, you're right. But, so, but they could use these interdiction fields to artificially create this sort of like vacuum out of the hyperdrive to pull ships out of hyperspace before they expect it. But what if it was a planet that didn't yet have the technological capabilities to do an interdiction field? I mean, the interdiction field is more for the government, the empire to keep their, the insurgents from running away from them. They activate the, the uh, interdiction field and say, no, 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 you can't hyperspace out of here. We got you, baby. Well, also, you can't hyperspace into a planet, though. Right. And kill everybody. Exactly. So, you know. It, yeah. it goes both ways. Less affluent groups, such as pirates, would drag large asteroids into the uh, hyperspace lanes <clears throat> to pull ships out of hyperspace that way. That's what I would do. I think they're heroes. Yeah. Okay. Nobody should be in hyperspace. Well, they pull them out of hyperspace to rob them and steal their ships. Still heroes. Okay. Another big threat is black holes. Oh, are um, they? I mean, just just categorically, black holes are a threat to everything. At least a few vessels a year were destroyed by several wandering black holes in real space. Just a few. They come out and they're sucked in. Outside the bounds of a vessel shielding, hyperspace itself was a, was a lethal environment to any real space species. Yes. You don't want to stick your head out the window while you're in hyperspace. Yes. Being blown out of the airlock in a vessel while in hyperspace was a much more effective way to kill an individual than exposing the individual to the vacuum of real space. Okay. You really want to kill someone. I mean, that away. is also effective uh, it's kind in of, and of itself. It's kind but... of the perfect crime. There's no body. 
But what if the next person to come through hyperspace hits their body? It's going to splat their windows. It's going to be fine. If they launch an escape pod in hyperspace, <clears throat> they could survive. Really? But if that escape pod didn't have a hyperdrive, they were stuck in hyperspace forever. No. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, until the next ship came along and hit them and splatted them. Yep. No. You're stuck there. I don't like this. Even staring at hyperspace from an observation deck of a starship for a prolonged period of time could produce what's called hyper-rapture, which is a type of madness. There's something fundamentally wrong with viewing the high-dimensional universe. A standard Imperial operating procedure was to keep the transparasteel opaque during travel through hyperspace. Basically, they would put the blinds on the windows. So you couldn't look outside. So you couldn't go crazy. Whoa. Darth Vader enjoyed staring at the kaleidoscopic and swirling patterns of light, however. <gasps> Does that mean Darth Vader is crazy? He was already crazy, so it's probably fine. I want to see if you get hyper-rapture. Hold on. Oh my god. You're pulling up a YouTube video that's going to make me give hyper-rapture? We're just going to stare at it for a little bit, okay? Okay. We'll see if it affects you. See how long it takes for Hyper Rapture to kick in. <laughs> We're on board the Millennium Falcon. We're looking out the window. <laughs> Who made this? Just look at the hyperspace. Well, I mean, I essentially feel like I'm looking at a screensaver from, like, circa 1999. No, no, no. Imagine you're on the spaceship. Okay. Bring it a little closer to you. Oh, wait. Now I'm feeling it. You're feeling it? Oh, now I'm feeling it. Oh, no. Oh no! Oh no, Ryan! Oh my god, it's full of stars! I know, I love it. <laughs> we made it 43 seconds in. Right. It's right. hyper rapture, everybody. Right. What's the what's the cure for hyper rapture, buddy? Don't hold out on me, what's the cure? Let me look at your hand. Mm-hmm. I'm back. Okay, good. Man, your hand looks weird. It does. You ever think about that? So when a... was attempted using a damaged hyperdrive, a starship could be stuck in a crossroad of space. Halfway into hyperspace, halfway into real space. Oh. And you are stuck there. Oh. You're a ghost ship at that point, basically. You're just kind of phasing in and out of existence. I don't like it. You don't like it? I don't want to travel in hyperspace. Sounds scary. So, like I said, it's really dangerous to navigate hyperspace because if you get in the gravity well of a planet, you're screwed. So you need to have a very high-tech navigation computer. That's like what Han Solo has on the Millennium Falcon. A very high-tech computer, okay. If you remember, it was, uh, it's Lando's droid. Yeah. It's Lando's ex-girlfriend's soul, and then Han Solo proceeds to steal the ship that has his ex-girlfriend's soul in it. It's L3, so she would be the one that calculates the route and, like, the points to come out at, the safe passage two different planets and stuff. Okay. So if you have a spaceship and you want to go on a hyperdrive, you better have a nav computer or an astromech droid or something to do the, all the calculations for you because it's way beyond a human's comprehension. Whoa. Got to think of like three and four dimensions here. So hyperspace travel time. You're saying, how long would it take to get from one side of the galaxy to the other? Well, that depends based on a number of factors, such as stellar hazard, asteroid fields, if you have to go through... Uh, alternate routes. It's kind of like Google Maps, right? It kind of reroutes you a whole bunch. Sorry, is it like recalculating? Execute so, a legal U-turn. For example, Coruscant and Alderaan. So in terms of distance, they're really close to each other. They're about 5,000 light years from each other. Like, Oh yeah, really close. Well, you know. One blows up, it only takes 5,000 years for the other one to see the light from the explosion. Really close. That's really close, well, comparatively. Yes. Uh, however, during the Imperial era, such a journey required roughly 16 hours of travel because you had to s- travel through a section that was in the deep core like the very center of the galaxy, where it's super high density. Eek. There's tons of dangerous stuff in there. Aye. Aye. And so it's actually faster to travel from Tatooine to Alderaan because it was just a straight shot. And don't have to go through the middle. Got it. Right? And so 
your ship would have a, usually a rating on its hyperdrive. The lower the number, the faster it goes. And so like a capital ship would usually have a, a class one hyperdrive. A, a, an X-Wing or something would have a class two hyperdrive. But you can modify them. So like the Millennium Falcon, for example, has a 0.5 speed hyperdrive. That's not even possible. 0.5 isn't a number. Dash the man Rendar has a 0.75 on the Outrider. Shut up. Yeah, he modified And yet he it. still couldn't avoid that skyhook. He did, though, if you remember. And he actually did, though. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Come on. Come on. So anyway, those are all the Legends details of hyperdrive. The cannon side is fairly similar but I like how it kind of cuts to the chase. It gives all the details about like hyperspace kind of talks like an alternate dimension, but it says, aside from these well-established facts acknowledged by all competent astrophysicists and astrogation experts, other aspects of hyperspace admittedly remained a mystery. <laughs> Thank you. We don't know how it works. Thank you. Thank you for, 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 for not talking down to us and just admitting we don't know what the hell. Here's an interesting wrinkle though. In the canon side, it says the ability to travel through hyperspace occurred naturally in nature. Uh, what? The space-based species known as the Purgle could naturally travel through hyperspace. A Purgle what? So the Purgle were a species of massive whale-like creatures lived in deep space, traveling from star system to star system. It was their natural ability to fly through hyperspace that inspired sentience to develop the hyperdrive technology. Oh, word? It's how these space whales jumping through hyperspace said, hey, we could try that. Uh-huh. Right? Uh-huh. Except we're not space whales with natural ability to jump through hyperspace, but otherwise we could do it. However, according to Harrison Dula, she's one of the pilots from the Rebels cartoon, most spacers considered Purgle to be a pest due to their habit of approaching and flying into starships near their flight paths, and for ships crashing into their swarms during hyperspace um, travel. sorry, they're just trying to live. Yeah. Like, this is their natural state. You guys are the interlopers here. Well, they had so many spacers were dead due to Purgles that most spacers would try to shoot them on sight. <laughs> It's like Buffalo. A little bit. It's like how Buffalo would always crash into trains when they were traveling through hyperspeed across the prairie. Yeah, they would go way too fast and they would just blow up those Oregon trails. Yeah, and that's uh, the legend. That's how the West was, was won. By hyperspace buffaloes. <laughs> Here's another interesting wrinkle that was only in the canon side of things. It says, during the First Order Resistance conflict, this is in Episode 7, The Force Awakens, they have that Starkiller base, remember? Yeah. The big laser that shoot, kills like 12 planets at once. Yeah. Well, it turns out they use that by firing through subspace, which is kind of like in between real space and hyperspace. I would feel like it would be below. I feel like it would go sub, yeah. real, hyper. Why is sub in between? I don't know. But anyway, by, that, by shooting that much energy through space, it actually caused a rip in sub-hyperspace. Rip. So it was able to become visible across the galaxy instantaneously. Without having to worry about the like, light travel time. Oh. That's why everyone around the galaxy was like, Oh my, lasers in the sky! At the same time, oh my God. because they ripped hyperspace to do it. Um, is that going to, like, heal itself? Or is what? that going to be... It sounds like it could be kind of bad to, like, rip the fabric of space-time, or am I stupid? No, you're not stupid. It's a bad idea. But that's where you're going to end it, isn't yep, it? that's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> just, did the rip get better, Ryan? We have to wait for episode nine to find out. Do you think they're going to address it? That's where Snoke came from. <gasps> oh my god, we finally figured out Snoke's backstory. He came from a rip in space time and like he is space time. He's like, he's, he's like, in episode seven, but then he makes this rip and then he's like, you know, he's a hologram before. He's like Because he knew he was going to die and so like he made a rip so he could like leave his hologram in his place and then escape. And it was actually his hologram that got killed by Kylo uh, Ren. Dude. Dude, we figured out Snoke. That's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> what a place to end it. Awesome, Ryan. I don't awesome. think, I feel like none of us learned anything from this one. Probably I learned either. a lot from your part. I feel like this, the hyperspace nonsense is near too nonsensical. And I'm so glad the can is just like, 
It's pretty much magic. It's pretty much magic. It's a kind of magic. The more you explain this stuff, the more names you slap on things, the more rules you lay down, the less cool it becomes to me. Well, likewise, the more Tolkien tried to explain the qualities of magic in his universe, the more he got confused. And the less clear it became. Yeah. Which is... Which is why, let this be a lesson to you, never try to explain anything. Keep it simple, keep it vague, okay? That's what we do. That's that's basically our motto here on this podcast. Don't be like me in the last half hour reading exact quotes off Wikipedia about thermal dampeners and stuff. It is an exercise in utmost futility. It is. You know what else? Speaking of exercises in futility... Hmm. The worst, the worst, the worst, the worst, the worst name challenge. Hachi Machi, you're right. So by futility, I mean the futility of anybody trying to beat today's champion. Nob. That's right, Nob. Nobody can beat Nob. Nob is this week's champion. Yeah, he squeaked past Effent Mon. He continues on this week to fight our next challenger. I mean, I think that what this shows us pretty clearly is that nothing beats a dick joke. But it might not beat this one because it's a very bad name. Well, okay, lay it on me and we'll see. Now, I feel bad kind of using this one because it's from actually a pretty cool part in the Clone Wars cartoon. Yeah. So in the Clone Wars cartoon, it goes into how Darth Maul survived being chopped in half. Yes. And there's this whole section where his brother goes on a quest to find him and bring him back to Dathomir, to, oh. to the Night Witches. It's pretty cool. However, his name is Maul, right? Yes. His brother has another equally on-the-nose name. Even more on-the-nose than Darth Maul? His name is Savage Opress. <laughs> Spelled savage. <laughs> but it's pronounced savage. Savage oppressed. It's kind of like, you know, the, those famous acting brothers, Ben and Fred Savage. <laughs> he is a yellow Darth Maul with longer horns. He is voiced by Clancy Brown, who also voices like Mr. Krabs and characters like that. Um, and also Kurgan. Kurgan and Highlander. Highlander. He, he was in Carnival. It's kind of magic. He's oh, a, yeah. He's a pretty good guy. But Savage Opress. Savage Opress. It's not a dick joke. I'm going for the high road this week and hoping my 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 listeners see this name and say, damn, that's on the nose. Savage Opress fighting Nob. So if you want to vote for those, all you have to do is onto our Facebook <laughs> or Twitter and cast your vote. Which one do you think has the worst name? You can also... Onto our homepage at www.whatslightsabersprecious.com. Or alternatively, you can into our inbox yeah. and leave us a, a nice email. Or you can onto Apple Podcasts and leave us a review or a rating to show us that you're listening and you like it. But for now, I've got to go start my car because the battery died. Is that true? No, that's not true. I just wanted to use jump one more time. Oh, okay. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll talk to you next week. All right, see you next week, everybody. Bye.